Hi, everyone. We are so excited to share our sixth episode with you all. Yes, and we are also excited to introduce you all to Emily DeVegvar, who will be joining us on the podcast. Emily, it is so great to have you here. Thank you so much, Nadia and Dominica. I'm so excited to join, especially on this episode about environmental policy with Representative Mike Quigley. He represents the 5th District of Illinois, which includes some of the northern suburbs of Chicago. He truly has been passionate about climate change his entire life, even before his political career. He's been a member of the Sierra Club, a key grassroots environmental organization, since he was 16. Wow, talk about dedication to a cause. He's here to talk to us about how climate change intersects with other policies, as well as understanding how committees work, how bills pass, and how lobbyists influence federal legislation. Right. And one of the things we'll be talking about is Biden's new Build Back Better plan. Emily, do you mind telling us what that is? Of course. Joe Biden's next big bill is tackling infrastructure and is known as the Build Back Better plan. It involves spending $4 trillion on green infrastructure, such as renewable energy plans, electric vehicles, and semiconductors over the next 10 years. It further includes a $400 billion procurement investment and a $300 billion investment in research and development. Wow, $4 trillion? But Biden had trouble getting his $2 trillion COVID relief package through Congress. How does he have the political capital to do anything bigger? Well, I guess we have Representative Quigley to give us the details on that and how it's moving forward. Of course. Let's hear what he has to say. All right. Representative Quigley, it is so great to have you here. Thank you for being with us. Glad to be here. Thank you so much. So you have actually cited your passion for the environment as one of the reasons that you got into public service. I'm kind of wondering how this passion has manifested itself in your career, especially in your position as vice chair of the Sustainable Energy and Environment Coalition. You know, uh, I tell everybody, remember and thank your teachers because uh, you have no idea just how much they're going to have influenced you. In uh, my freshman year of high school, I had a, and this just wasn't long after Earth Day, I had a biology teacher give me a book on the environment called The Population Bomb by Dr. Paul Ehrlich out of Stanford. And uh, for four years, he mentored me on environmental issues. And uh, he always said, don't let anyone tell you that you can't save the world. You can, and you have a moral responsibility to try. The fact that I remember that today, I mean, that's been the theme through my life and the evolution to get to this point. And, you know, for all of us, it's a struggle. You know, if we have a mission here and a purpose, how do you carry that out, right? What's the best vehicle? You know, and I've, I've been an attorney, uh, I've been a professor, uh, I've been an aide to an alderman, I've been a Cook County commissioner, I've been a congressman, and uh, I've run campaigns. So for me, it was this, you know, what did John Lennon say? Life's what happens while you plan it. I've been fortunate to get to this point, but it was always the notion of this is the best place for me to carry out my freshman high school biology teacher's advice. Um, You know, I mean, at one point I worked for the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency right here in Region 5. I had an internship when I was a senior in college. And then I got a a full-time gig there working on air programs. 
on things like CAP air programs, CAP and trade, which is really how uh, climate change issues are going to manifest itself, how we're going to address them from a regulatory point of view. Um, so, you know, and that was great. But somewhere along the way, I realized for me, it's different for everyone. I go, wow, these elected officials, that's where everybody goes when they want to change things. Why not try to be one of those? So I guess in short, that's, that's what it was for me is just finding a, the best way to have the most influence where I didn't have to ask somebody else to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And so I mentioned you're on the SEEC. Um, so I, I'm wondering kind of what policy you're pushing right now currently. I imagine some of it might be related to Biden's new infrastructure bill. It will. Um, I, but I think there's a theme there when it, as it relates to sustainability. Every bill has to be a climate change bill, mm -hmm. right? We never thought of it that way. When I was a Cook County commissioner for 10 years, they said I was the greenest local elected official in the country. That's because we were passing ordinances to eliminate bottled water, uh, to mandate recycling, to mandate recycled content purchasing, uh, sustainable purchasing, bird safe buildings, <laughs> you know, green roofs, uh, you know, a long list. So, you know, that was the notion. And SEEK is the caucus in Congress that tries to funnel all the po those policy ideas into legislation, a wide variety. So you mentioned one, and that's infrastructure. We used to think of infrastructure bills that we're going to build new bridges and new roads, right? This one has to be different than our father's infrastructure bill. It has to do things that address climate change. We have to restore the lands around the Great Lakes. We have to restore our shoreline because of rising lake waters. We have to uh, deal with restoration programs. We have to help address uh, urban flooding issues, the digital divide, uh, environmental issues that help with pedestrian bike paths, mass transit instead of just more roads, and literally dozens of things that just weren't what they used to be. Hey, and if we're gonna build a new building, you know, during the depression, the Civilian Conservation Corps built things. We, you know, here we were in the great economic downturn, but we were dreaming big and building bigger. Well, we're in an economic downturn due to the pandemic. We should feel the same way. So we should build new buildings, school buildings, park district facilities, and so forth, but they should all be sustainable, right? They should be bird safe. They should be uh, zero emissions. Um, and they should capture all the things that we want for the next generation, not for the last. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's just, it's interesting because I mean, the American society of civil engineers has rated America's infrastructure as a D plus, which is yeah. insane. Um, yeah. and I think part of that is kind of due to the fact that some like past presidents haven't really been able to, to pass infrastructure bills. Um, and it's weird because infrastructure kind of seems like a nonpartisan issue, but for some reason it's not. I'm wondering if you could talk about that. Yeah, it, it, you're right. It's a, it shouldn't be a, a bipartisan, a, a partisan issue. Um, you know, I think that if you ask President Obama, if he had one of the things he'd like to get done that he didn't get done in eight years, it's a big infrastructure bill. 
President Trump was sort of a half-assed effort toward that end. Uh, I think it would have helped him a great deal, mollify a lot of folks who had problems with him. But, you know, he simply said, well, the Republicans have a problem with how we pay for it. Here we are spending, what, $5 trillion due to the pandemic to keep the economy up. Um, and that's all on credit. Now we're talking about the possibility of a $2 trillion infrastructure bill, which is far more of an investment, a long-term investment than what we might gleam as an expenditure. There ought to be bipartisan support for that. And we ought to care about each other. To your point, it's not just important to be bipartisan and, and avoid partisanship just so we can get things done. It's because we ought to care about each other, right? Uh, the, uh, the former chairman of the Appropriations Committee was trying to, he's a Republican, he's trying to build a tunnel from Jersey into New York, another one, and the Trump administration shut him down. And I stood up and argued for him. And I said, I should care just as much about your tunnel as you should care about me rebuilding the blue line in Chicago, as an example, or our shoreline, as you should care just as much about uh, the locks on the Mississippi getting rebuilt and all the infrastructure needs. The, the fact that the digital divide is, is much worse in rural America than other areas. So we ought to all care about each other. And if we do that, then we'll avoid, to your point, a, a partisan fight. Mm -hmm. And what parts of Biden's bill do you especially like in regards to how infrastructure is relating to sustainability and climate change? The fact that they're even thinking about it is a, is a positive change, right? I mean, we just had an administration pull out of the Paris Accord as one of its first acts and, and change about 100 regulations, all to the negative. Uh, so in, instead of racing to address climate change, we are going in the exact opposite direction. And the fact that he has put Mr. Kerry in there at a cabinet level position to address climate change tells us a lot. But the notion that infrastructure has got to include addressing climate change is such a Herculean change, such a difference. And you know, the appointments that you're seeing there uh, are particularly welcome. And finally, that he's incorporating the input of so many different lawmakers as to what they want in a package like this. Um, you know, we hear a lot of criticism about Congress, most of it justified. But I'll tell you, there's a lot of talent there. There's a lot of folks who really get uh, creative notions of sustainability. And I think the president gets that and he's listening to those voices. And I think we'll have a better product as a result. Mm hmm. And since we're on the topic of the bill and we're a civics podcast, I was wondering if you could kind of give us uh, an overview of how this infrastructure bill would become legislation. Um, like, could you walk us through the basic steps and what stages it's in right now? I think right now uh, it's in the listening stages. Uh, the president just had leadership over to the White House, uh, transportation uh, authorizers, uh, Democrat and Republican and others, appropriators, just to talk about what the framework would be. And then uh, obviously his liaisons are talking to all members of Congress to the same point. <laughs> Big pictures here are, you know, how to begin to incorporate this, not just into an infrastructure bill, but into a climate change bill. That's sort of happening at the same time. Um, think of it as wish list, what the parameters would be, how we would pay for it. The 
big question will be, will this get Republican support? You saw with the CARES package, you saw what we had to do. We're still in the process of doing it in terms of uh, budget complications, right? That make this so difficult to get anything done. Because again, it's the narrowest of margins, 50-50 with the vice president breaking the tie. But to answer your question, listening to everyone, trying to get, you know, if we got 10 Republicans on the bill on the Senate, then we can do pretty much whatever the hell we want. If we don't have Republican support, it gets much, much tougher. Uh, there's a number of bills that unless you, if you don't get Republican support, which will be tough, um, and you don't bust up the filibuster, get rid of that where you need 60 votes, then you're hard pressed to get much of anything done. So you're anti-filibuster. I'm anti-filibuster because I, you know, I get the downside of getting rid of the filibuster. When things flip over, the other side can do terrible things without this uh, ability to have a, a majority, a, more than a majority, a 60 vote. But if you're ever going to do it, now's the time. I mean, it, it has its roots in, in uh, slavery and racism, and uh, it's not democratic. But if you're going to go big, you're not going to, you can't go big without busting up the filibuster. If we're going beyond just infrastructure, if we're talking about uh, equality, uh, if we're talking about justice issues, we just passed HR1, we just passed uh, <clears throat> a massive bill relating to justice, equality, and uh, police violence issues. Uh, they're not gonna go anywhere in the Senate unless we do something dramatic with the filibuster. So if you're going to go big, go really big, break up the filibuster and get your money's worth. Let's get a lifetime of accomplishments done. To a sense, what we did under the first two years under President Obama, I tell folks, remember what you care about and look back to President Obama's first two years. We had 60 members of the Senate. We had control of the House and obviously the White House, and we passed a life-changing, historic healthcare law. We still have another one of those to do. I get it. And for those who say, you know, you get this done, it's not going to happen unless we break up the filibuster. I don't have a vote in that matter. But if I mm -hmm. did, I would say, let's go big, folks. You know, we're not here to be squeamish. On the morning that we passed the healthcare law, People forget how close that vote was. People forget how difficult that vote was. President Obama came over to the Cannon Caucus Room and he spoke to us without a note. It was the best I've ever heard him and there's a lot of competition there. And he looked people right in the eyes uh, talking about passing life-changing healthcare legislation. He said, uh, I know this is a tough vote, you got to ask yourself, why are you here? But to take tough votes, um, you have to be willing to risk your job to do the right thing. So, you know, getting ahead of ourselves here, but uh, bottom line, you pick an issue you care about. You know, we probably can't do it, given the parliamentarians ruling minimum wage on unless we break the filibuster. Yeah, and unless it's interesting. The Senate, unless the Senate Republicans have a change of heart and decide that they're going to do something. Right. 
Well, it's interesting because people think that the filibuster having it in place promotes bipartisanship. No. But as we've seen, that hasn't really been the case. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. It, to an extent, had some elements of uh, protecting the minority party and uh, being overridden dramatically. Um, and it had some notions of uh, keeping the Senate from doing something dramatic in a hurry as opposed to the House passing all this. But I think all that's outweighed with the fact that what it has become and what it was more critically in its history reflects the ugly side of this country. Um, I didn't know. I mean, it was rooted in Jim Crow laws. That's where its origins are. No, absolutely. And eliminate and and, um, making it extraordinarily difficult to pass changes in those laws, right? The civil rights legislation had to battle um, filibusters. But, you know, even then you had some notion of an ability to break them. And we had some bipartisan support, the Republicans who voted for civil rights legislation. And unfortunately, the Southern Democrats were all too often opposed. I, you know, I, I didn't think we would ever get into a point in our country where we got to this kind of ugliness. You know, the four years of that was the Trump administration, to an extent culminating January 6th. Right. And, mm-hmm. and I was in the room where it happened, one of the wow. rooms. And um, what I saw from those people reflected um, the lack of angels in any souls. Right. Lincoln appealed to the better angels of our nature. I didn't see an angel in any. I didn't see a glimmer of a soul in most of those people's eyes. They wanted to kill us. Uh, they wanted mm-hmm. to stamp out democracy. Uh this is far flung, but I have it here somewhere. I'm rereading Sinclair Lewis's uh, It Can't Happen Here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a great little thought in the beginning of it and in the person's afterward, the most recent edition. It's already here if what we're talking about is a dark fascist element woven into the fabric of a great deal of our population, right? They would have gone along with Trump being president forever. They would have gone with uh, quashing civil liberties, the rule of law. I mean, the president just crushed the rule of law. And I was there as part of those investigations. You know, they were fine with it. So we have to be mindful of that in everything we do. Uh, You're your generation is popping up at an amazing time where it's your turn to lead. I'm obviously not going to be here forever. Um, and your spirit is going to be more important than ever. Um, you know, I, when I was in high school, it was uh, Watergate, mm. <laughs> the end of the Vietnam War, and uh, a lot of other corruption issues. I grew up politically in the city of Chicago, working for an alderman, uh, then as a county commissioner. You know, we, in that time frame, up until today, Chicago has been judged many times as the most corrupt city in America. So when I have spoken and taught at universities, I, I see a lot of skepticism and cynicism, which I understand. 
but it's really the wrong way to meet this. Uh, for those you say this is civics, you know, you should take this the opposite way. You know, I mean, <laughs> what keeps me going after over 40 years in Chicago politics to still think you can change things and four years with the Trump administration and almost getting killed on January 6th is the idealism that separates us, right? That makes us appreciate this. Um, go watch uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. <laughs> uh, go watch Casablanca. Uh, you know, uh, go watch West Wing. Uh, read. There's a, there's a lot of re readings to do out there to inspire you. So uh, I encourage you all to be active and engaged in this business because it's important. And you can't leave it to the bad people. To yeah, because someone's going to do it. So might as someone's well. Someone's going to do it. And, and she may be a crazy from Georgia or from Colorado, and he may be a complete angry, violent elected official from either Maryland trying to bring on the gun on the floor of the House of Representatives or condoning when those did who were trying to, to kill us. So, um, you know, I am always willing to talk to anyone who is interested in coming into this business if they have the right notion, whether they agree with me or not. I have probably mentored and advised hundreds of people who have thought about this, young people who have thought about this. Um, and even after all this, my strongest encouragement is to do it. It's the, you're not going to make as much money as you would doing other things. But uh, you're always going to feel like it was worthwhile. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And turning our attention kind of to like more uh, some more civics <laughs> related yeah. topics, which is, that was great advice. Thank you. Um, I kind of want to talk about like the role of committees in Congress. I know that you're on the House Committee on Appropriations. Um, so I'm wondering if you could talk about what that kind of does, like what you do on that and what is the difference between that and SEEK, for example, which is like a coalition? Yeah, that's right. Uh, SEEK, the coalition, it's a caucus. Caucuses uh, don't have votes. Uh, caucuses are where like-minded people come together on common issues. So there is uh, a caucus on Poland. There's a caucus on Eastern, there's caucuses that deal with every country. There's caucuses on ALS on specific problems and issues. So uh, they still have value in, they meet and have guest lecturers and they brainstorm. And it's where a lot of really smart people of common mind come together and move forward with ideas. You know, they learn from folks on the outside, past members of Congress and uh, you know, seek, we hear, I mean the best and the brightest in the world on climate change and the most innovative cutting edge ideas. That's valuable. Committees are formalized structures within the rules of a legislative body. So, you know, the 101, basic 101 is obviously a body of 435 people can't deliberate in the detail necessary, every piece of legislation. <laughs> so they break down to smaller groups, usually specialized. So tax policies and ways and means, right? Uh, E&C, Energy and Commerce, that's going to be uh, where climate change bills go. I'm on the Appropriations Committee. We write the checks. So you think, oh, I, you, know, you, you can't get anything done. Look, I, I came where you were. 
I was a teacher. I was a student at the University of Chicago. I grew up in a average suburb of Chicago in amount of appropriations. Within that group, there are 12 subcommittees. Those 12 subcommittees fund the federal government. And each of those chairmen are called cardinals. <laughs> Within my purview, I fund it. I'm the one who writes the bill that funds everything in that purview. And in mine, it's the IRS. It's the watchdogs of Wall Street. It's uh, the GSA, which builds every building in Chicago, including our ports of entry. Uh, so you've got extraordinary influence and power. Oh, yes. And by the way, the federal courts. So this last week, I met with the chief justice, Ms. Kagan, and uh, talked about the federal courts and what their needs were financially. Having been a meat and potatoes criminal defense attorney, pretty cool meeting with the chief justice after mm -hmm. that. And, and boy, they, they got to answer your questions. But, you know, you think of anything the federal government funds, it comes within those 12. They come up with those bills, the full committee passes them, they go to the House floor. So committees are many versions of the full house where legislation goes to concentrate and focus on that policy issue. And they're also a hurdle, right? You've got to get a bill out of committee. If not, it's a lot tougher to pass legislation. But, uh, you know, it is, as you've read in Civics 101, you know, the path of legislation committees play a critical role. And if you're not in the majority, you're Final point. I mean, people say to me, how would you teach differently if you came back and taught basic 101 or 400 level? How does Congress work? If you're not in the majority, you're out of luck. Your, your bill doesn't flow. It doesn't get heard in committee usually and almost never finds the floor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I know that you've also been pushing for... Um, Chicago area infrastructure developments. I'm kind of wondering what exactly you've been pushing for. And also what are the climate related um, pr priorities for your constituents? Yeah, it, first of all, it's listening. I think that's a critical part of it. I learned in, in, in programs like this where people listen and they send letters, but I talked to community organization. Yesterday I talked to uh, Matt, the alderman from the 47th Ward. He and I had walked through his neighborhoods, and sh he showed me areas of urban flooding. So to answer your question, it's organic. It comes from the ground up. Uh, I can't say, Chicago, this is what you need. I need to listen to local community groups, mm -hmm. individuals, schools, people, transit agencies, lo other local governments, other local officials say, hey, Quigley, <laughs> you know, we need to deal with the grid system, as we learned in Texas, for example. <laughs> Or quickly, we've got to restore Lake Michigan's shoreline. There's no way in the world anybody can know all that. So, you know, and I, I want to couple all that with this realization. All local governments are hurting big time because of COVID and the economic downturn. So, you know, local governments, state governments, they need help financially, and they're going to need help with the infrastructure problems they can't afford right now. So that's part of what we're doing. Uh, I guarantee you, I've got shopping lists from Mayor Lightfoot, Governor Pritzker, and others. And a lot of them have to do with sustainability and the environment. And how can Chicago be a leader for the nation in climate change? I know that there has been, um, like Metro has been buying low emission locomotives. Great example, but 
the last four years it's been on because the Trump administration was going in the opposite direction on climate change. It's been on individuals. It's been on institutions like schools and places of worship and so forth and local governments to, to lead the way. And we've looked and corporations, obviously not for profits and for profits. So, uh, Again, back when I was a county commissioner, they said, well, you, you're doing all these green local things. Every government can, from how they purchase to how, how they uh, operate. Everything a government does, it can be done in a more sustainable fashion. How its fleets operate, right? How it builds its building, how it maintains those buildings, what kind of chemicals they use. How do public transit agencies operate? How can we encourage people to use their feet their bikes and public transit over getting in a car. Tax policy at the local level can dramatically alter people's behavior. Uh, so uh, I'm excited. Chicago's really come a long way uh, from when I was a student at the University of Chicago and I was trying to write some of the first environmental legislation for the city council. It, it I, I will say, I was a student at the University of Chicago when we, my boss, moved forward a legislation um, banning new landfills in the city of Chicago. And they were gonna go environmental justice issues being what they were then and now, it was gonna go on the Southeast side where there are more per capita than any place in the United States. So local governments have and will continue to play an extraordinarily important role in sustainability uh, and environmental justice issues that play out within that. Now, turning back to Congress, um, I'm kind of just wondering how lobbyists and interest groups affect the way you legislate, especially in regards to climate change policies, and what is the role of lobbyists in the overall um, legislating process? Well, look, there's, there's the role that comes, the negative way people look at this is, you know, lobbyists spend big money and that influences, you know, dark money and so forth. <laughs> Most of that is more transparent through lobbyists. Um, and I think most lobbyists donate sort of a chicken and egg. I think that if you come there and you're a proponent of a, of a particular issue, they're likely to support you, not the other way around. You go there, they tell you to be like this. Most members don't get elected and say, I'll go to DC and let them tell me what to do. I think the other thing that isn't as well known is that uh, lobbyists uh, are often the teachers unions. Lobbyists are environmental organizations. Lobbyists are individuals who are asking me to work on issues like ALS and you know, neurodegenerative diseases. There is an incredible wealth of information that come comes from lobbyists. Uh, a lot of them are not-for-profit type entities that come to us on a wide range of issues. Uh, moms demand action on gun violence. You know, I see them a couple times a year. So there is a justified concern with the role some lobbyists play. There is an obvious concern with the role money plays. But to say that lobbying itself is is not a good thing uh, and is negative really belies the fact that it's an incredibly complicated world and lobbyists do provide a, a, an extreme wealth of information uh, and we help understand. During COVID, uh, any number of small businesses were lobbying us, if that's lack of a better way to describe it, saying, 
that they were in danger of going out of business without some change or some help. Mm -hmm. So I would be remiss if I didn't talk about Texas um, and the situation there. It's really um, spawned a lot of debate, specifically around what kind of energy should be used, you know, the the debate between wind um, and solar and even natural gas. Um, So, and there's also been a debate, obviously, about Texas's power grid, and some are advocating for more smart grid tech. So I'm wondering, what are your major takeaways from this event, um, and how do you think that this applies to your constituents? Well, look, uh, I have legislation I'm the sponsor of to make our grid system smarter and more efficient. Um, It was a hodgepodge for a long period of time, and that has to change. Be more efficient, be safer, uh, and obviously... It is, it is fundamental. We are not going to address climate change unless we address that issue absolutely head on. As always, when a crisis like Texas takes place, um, there are those who use the opportunities to bring out bizarre, uh, ill-founded, unfounded, crazy ideas. Like this was the fault of wind when the uh, the, the gas plants down there were, were shut down. The uh, turbines that they had were not winterproof like ours are. So it had nothing to do with uh, whether or not they were using sustainable energy. The more sustainable, more sustainable energy that's used, the safer and more reliant it's going to be if properly implemented. So the big lesson is the country has to redo its entire system and uh, that'll allow it to be more uh, safe, reliable, sustainable, and, uh, and productive. To use what took place there as anything other than a warning to us that we need to get our act together as a nation is a mistake. Uh, and look, Texas had some advantages, particularly in their minds, in, in going it alone the way that they did. But obviously what happens when, when you're on your own and things go bad, you know, you're stuck in that vein. Nobody in America should be in that position. But nobody in America should be dependent upon coal burning power plants. And the factor is natural gas is not much better in the overall picture as it relates to sustainability in the environment. We have to move forward and a whole new way of doing this, putting a price on carbon as the beginning. And number, you know, I'd say number, a close second would be issues relating to the transmission of energy. Mm-hmm. And so we've talked a lot about how um, climate change is really an interrelated issue, but I'm wondering if we can get more specific on that, specifically how it is related to topics like racial justice and the economy and even COVID-19. Well, I, uh, there's a much, 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 much more complicated, longer answer. But at the time we have, I think COVID or any any disaster or uh, crisis always shows and accentuates the divide in this country between those who have and those who do not, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, those who are most impacted by COVID were uh, people of color, uh, people with less means, and uh, they're, they're more likely to be impacted, more likely to be unable to uh, shelter from this. They're, they're gonna be out in the front lines more often. They're gonna have less quality health care to begin with. They're gonna have more under, underlying health issues. And that's just the beginning. Um, so, you know, 
environmental justice issues. Uh, environmental issues have always been environmental justice issues. Um, coal burning power plants in Chicago is just one example. We're always located in areas of um, poor Chicagoans. It's just always the case. As I mentioned before, uh, in southeast side of Chicago, the residues of the steel plants, um, the um, landfill issues there, were all disproportionately impacting poor people, people of color. It's always been the case in this country and in Chicago. I used to do a tour when I was teaching environmental policy. It was called Down in the Dumps. And we went to the southeast side and we looked at all their environmental issues and had a local resident explain how they were impacted more. But, the, you know, in some respects, the good news is as we move away from this to a more sustainable, healthier uh, environment, economy, uh, and, and way of living, those that can benefit most are those who have suffered the most under the existing system. That is some of the best news about addressing climate change, putting a, putting a price on carbon. So, uh, you know, I have hope that one of those advantages will be a, a much healthier, uh, vibrant um, economy for those who have suffered the most from past sins. Mm -hmm. So final question. Um, I think that when we're thinking about climate change related issues and when people want people to go out and, you know, and make change, it's more of a moral collective action argument. Like we should, we should save the planet because it's the right thing to do and that we need to save uh, like our future generations and our children and our grandchildren. I'm wondering if you think that that's maybe the wrong communication. Do you think that it's not an effective way? Um, considering I think some people are like, oh, well, that's not me. Um, I, I'm wondering if there's a way to kind of yeah. make it more no. selfish almost. Look, you're raising a really good point. When I, again, when I first started doing this, the first time I was quoted in the Chicago paper, they were asking me, it was about an opportunity to recycle ordinance that as a staff member, I was writing. And I said, I have learned that you need more than one reason to get people to do the right thing. Back then, I would say there were five environmentalists in the Chicago City Council out of 50, right? But I was trying to make other arguments besides it's the right thing to do. It was um, waste disposal then was the fastest growing part of the budget. So, hey, if we start recycling, we won't have to put this in a landfill and we'll save that cost of waste disposal. Yeah. Uh, economic reasons, you know, if you can't appeal, I can't tell you how often this happens to me where I will talk to my staff and others and say, let's appeal to their heart. Uh, but it, you know, appealing to people's heart should also appeal to their brain. It's, mm -hmm. it's always, almost always with the environment, the smart thing to do for the economy, right? Uh, for making people safer, for reducing cost. Um, I guess the example I have from over a hundred years ago is Upton Sinclair wrote the jungle, right? What was he trying to do? He was trying to get people to help those who were in horrible working conditions and living conditions, right? Um, but he heard that President Roosevelt read the jungle and said, 
I've been poisoned, right? <laughs> and Sinclair said, well, I aimed for their heart, but I hit a little lower because people were disgusted by what was going on in the meatpacking plants and what they were eating. Your point's well taken. My attitude is hit them with everything you can. There's more than one argument that sells people to do the right thing. And you're absolutely right. You've got to make it selfish for many, if not the majority of people, to do the right thing. But those arguments are there all the same. Right. Well, Representative Quigley, thank you so much for being here and talking with us today. It was a pleasure. Always. Anytime. Thank you. Wow, just listening to these conversations made me so excited to join you all for future episodes. I certainly learned a lot, not just about how the federal government works, but also how environmental change can be made through the government. Same here. And when it comes to climate change, our generation is the one that is going to have to take charge on it, as we've already seen with people like Greta Thunberg and the Sunrise Movement. I hope that this conversation enlightens you all about how important the government can be in literally saving the planet. As always, I encourage you to reach out to your local representatives and push them to take a stance on this issue. You can easily find their contact information by searching them on the internet. And with those wise words, that ends our show. For you to shine the loop, I'm Domenic Fernando. I'm Emily DeVecba. And I'm Nadia Osman. See you in May.